Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, our text this morning begins at verse 45 and runs to the end of the chapter. Uh, Last time we were working our way through John's Gospel was mid-July, and we are back now after a detour Uh, looking at that theme of of reset, Uh, but we're back, and we'll be here in John's Gospel till 1st of December or so. Uh, We'll we'll take a little break like we do looking at Christmas from a particular section of the Bible. This year it'll be Isaiah, Uh, and then, Lord willing, we'll finish up uh, John's Gospel around Easter time. Uh, At least the way I've laid this out, we'll time up the resurrection account in John 20 with Easter Sunday and then finish right after that. So, Looking forward to being back here and being here at the end of John 11. Uh, Previously in John 11, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And in response to that, uh, there will be some who believe, but there will be others who want to oppose uh, the work of Jesus. This one who, uh, this pagan priest, uh, though he's the priest of God's people, yet he is clearly a pagan for not believing what Moses has written. He's going to tell the truth about Jesus, even in the midst of his unbelief. We need to hear this truth, that Jesus is the man, one man for the people. Uh, But in order to hear this, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come this morning as your people And we pray that you would come among us and you would speak your word to us. Holy Spirit, come, we ask, and open our eyes of faith this morning that we might see great riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 11, and beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't, I don't know how long ago it was when personal injury lawyers started advertising heavily on television and radio and billboards. But of all the advertising we are exposed to, I have to confess that at least for me, their advertisements are the ones that actually stick with me, the ones I remember the most. I mean, when we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, now 20, 25 years ago, Uh, There was a guy who advertised on all the billboards and had television spots, and he was the Kentucky Hammer. Uh, His name was Daryl Isaacs, but he was the Kentucky Hammer. Uh, And the effectiveness of his advertising is proven by the fact that here I am 20 years later, and I still remember the Kentucky Hammer. Or, Or if you drive through Alabama, every 20 miles or so, you see this guy's face on the side of the road, don't you? You know who it is. Alexander Sonora, um, same billboards out all throughout the state, red background, white and black with his face on it. Uh, or if you drive through Mississippi, it's, it's Richard Swartz, his tagline, one call, that's all. I mean, I'm telling you, it sticks with you, doesn't it? But, but the best advertising, or at least the advertising that most of us know, Uh, comes from that law firm, Morgan & Morgan. You know their tagline. It's for the people. That's right. Very good. It sticks with you as well, I see. But if you go to the YouTube channel that they have, and yes, Morgan & Morgan actually has a YouTube channel, there's actually a pretty amazing story from John Morgan on why he started his law practice. It was because his brother Tim uh, was injured in a workplace accident as a, as a young adolescent, uh, actually a late adolescent. Um, John Morgan was a younger brother and the family was poor and they weren't able to get the kind of representation they needed in order to care for Tim. And Tim spent the rest of his life uh, in a wheelchair. And so they, he starts this firm, this practice with the idea that he would be that one man who would be for the people. To, to work for them and to protect them and to ultimately de- deliver justice for them. Now, I mention all of that because that phrase, for the people, it, it was echoing in my head as a result of what Caiaphas says here. In many ways, that phrase, for the people, it, it, it gets to the heart of this passage, not just of the content of it, but of the gospel that it contains for us. Because as, we, as we're going to see, Caiaphas says here far more than he knew. But, but what he said was absolutely true. He says it there in verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. It is better for you that one man should be for the people. It's better because this is the way. You and I are delivered from ourselves, from our sin and our selfishness, guilt and shame, from the wrath and curse that hangs over us. It's better because this is the way of the wonderful exchange, as Luther calls it. One man dying for the people means that that our sin is transferred to Jesus, his righteousness imputed to us. He's our 
substitute. He is one man for us. This is better because, of course, this is the gospel. Not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. One man for us. One man for the people. But but Caiaphas didn't mean any of that, did he? When he said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, he meant it, he meant it in terms of a, of a policy. He meant it in terms of unbelief. This, this gospel word that for us is good news to Caiaphas, if, if he understood what he was saying, actually proved to be folly, foolishness. It's just as what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For unbelievers, the word of the cross, one man dying for the people, it's, it's folly, it's foolishness. But here's the thing. By calling the word of the cross folly or foolishness, unbelievers end up embracing a different kind of folly, their own foolishness. They end up in ironic situations and contradictions and paradoxes, unintended consequences, all because they reject the word of the cross. It's part of the folly of unbelief. That, that, that word, one man for the people, it, it creates these contradictions within these unbelievers that appear in this scene. There's, there's three particular ironies Three particular, if you will, follies that rejecting Jesus as Savior and substitute um, bring up in this passage. The, the irony of losing our place, the irony of losing our perspective, the irony of losing our purity. But, but notice first that, that the folly of unbelief displayed in this passage is seen in the irony of losing our place. As I mentioned, this passage comes hard on the heels of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And in fact, verse 45 connects us back to that scene. You see it in your Bible still, right? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what did he do? Raise Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. In fact, so many were believing in Jesus that in verse 47, you discover that the Pharisees gathered the council in order to discuss the matter. The original language here suggests that perhaps this was actually an unofficial meeting of the Sanhedrin, not an official one. And they gathered council together, uh, those who were at hand. And, and part of the reason perhaps this was an unofficial meeting is because there are certain rules that were in place for calling the Sanhedrin together. A certain amount of notice, a certain kind of stated business, certain rules that will apply. Um, this perhaps was closer to what I experienced in my last church when you had session meeting and then you had the parking lot session meeting, Right. The parking lot session meeting was no Robert's rules, no moderators, no minutes, uh, and, but make no mistake, very real discussion, very real determinations being made. That, that's, the, that's what's going on here. As this informal gathering of the Sanhedrin, the council is occurring, 
In the end, what they're going to do is they're going to authorize Jesus' arrest and even his death. You see that in verse 53. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This informal gathering of the Sanhedrin authorized the arrest and ultimately the death of Jesus. But why? Why, why, were, why did they authorize this? What, what was their motivating concern? Well, they, they tell us in verse 48. You see it there. Uh, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, so the concern was that if people believe in Jesus, it would actually be a challenge to Caesar himself. And in a way, they're telling the truth, aren't they? I mean, to claim that Jesus is Lord, Lord over all, is to, to make the implied claim that Caesar is not Lord, and so to, to, to believe in Jesus, to bow the knee to Jesus, means that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, not to Caesar. And if enough people do that, it would be threatening to the Romans. And so their concern then would be that the Romans would come in and deal with Jerusalem, and the result would be that the Jewish ruling class would lose their place, would lose their power, would lose their positions, their prominence in the city. So, friends, this was a real fear that they had, but but it's also ironic. It's ironic at least from the perspective of John's gospel, because this gospel was written around A.D. 90 or so, or, to put it differently, 20 years after what happened. Oh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So here's the irony. The reason they have for putting Jesus to the death was not to lose their place. But in the end, the Jews not only lost their place when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70, but they actually lost far more. Because in, in trying to hold on to their place, to their power, their prominence, to their, to their own world, in trying to hold on to that, what did they lose? They not only lost their place, they lost their souls. It's part of the folly of unbelief. That's what Jesus said. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? The Jewish ruling class was trying to hold on to their world, to hold on to their place, their power, their prominence. But not only did they not get to keep their place, they also lost their souls. It's foolish, isn't it? A fool's bargain is what they were making. And it leads to the irony of losing their place. But there's a second irony that comes from the folly of unbelief. Not just the irony of losing our place, but the irony of losing our perspective. In verse 48, they express concern about losing their place. And it's in response to that that the high priest 
Caiaphas responds. Caiaphas is mentioned here. He's been high priest since around AD 18 and will serve in that role till about AD 36 or about six years after Jesus is crucified. What does he say to all this? You look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. That in itself is ironic, because actually they said far more than they knew. Their their perspective actually was right. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, can we say it, billions upon billions, have believed in Jesus since these words were said and written. And in fact, they lost their place because the temple was destroyed and it's never been rebuilt. They actually were right. Caiaphas was wrong, but his, from his perspective, you know nothing at all. And this, this loss of perspective that Caiaphas has leads to an even greater one. He, he goes on, you know nothing at all. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So first Caiaphas tells them they don't understand anything. Then he tells them they don't understand real politique. They, they're not realistic about politics and strategy. If the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem, if people believe in Jesus, then the obvious answer is killing Jesus will stop belief in him. Okay, cue up the irony, right? Because, of course, that's the exact opposite of the truth. In fact, it's actually the death of Jesus that will lead all kinds of people to believe in him. What a loss of perspective Caiaphas has here. Caiaphas is the one who understands nothing, but for Caiaphas it gets worse. Because not only does Jesus die for the Jews, right? He dies for the nation. He actually is going to die for all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, black and brown and white, poor and rich, women and men. He, deals, he dies for all sorts of people so that the children of God from every tribe, language, and people might be brought together in a new community. That's, that's what John tells you as he explains the irony of it all. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, part of the folly of unbelief when we reject belief in Jesus is we actually lose perspective. We don't think we've lost perspective. As unbelievers, we think we, we think rightly. And you see this all the time in our secular world, don't you? Well, I believe what the science says. Or philosophy teaches us this and so. Or anyone who understands something about the economy and politics, they know this is true. And we end up in these debates with people because unbelievers come from a secular perspective, a secular worldview that they think is the truth. But, but ultimately, a worldview, a perspective that's not built around faith in Jesus inevitably sees things wrongly, as Caiaphas did. He thinks that, that the others in the council don't understand anything and he has all the truth. But in fact, though his advice was correct from God's perspective, 
from his own, it was actually the worst thing he could suggest. The death of Jesus that would lead to the salvation of the nations. It's part of the folly of unbelief. That we end up in all kinds of contradictions and ironies, don't we? The irony of losing our place. The irony of losing our perspective. But third, the irony of losing our purity. In verse 55, you actually learn that the the Passover is at hand. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So there's the picture. Right before Passover, Jews from all over the world are coming to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to do what? To purify themselves. What does that mean? Well, the Old Testament law required that before one came to Passover, that they went through a process of external purification. Numbers 9 describes some of this. To avoid touching dead bodies, to ensure that the appropriate washings were followed, to do everything necessary so that external purity might be achieved. And yet the irony is that during this time of purification, the chief priests and the Pharisees had actually given orders to arrest Jesus so that they might kill him. That's verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given order that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. In other words, while while they were in the process of external purity, the chief priests and the Pharisees were actually profoundly internally impure. But again, that's part of the folly of unbelief. When we fail to put our trust in Jesus, we end up with all kinds of contradictions where we think that if we can come to church and do religious things, perhaps offer a certain set of prayers or show up at certain times, that if we're externally pure, if we're religious externally, that 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 means we're all right with God. Even though internally, in our heart of hearts, we continue to embrace that which is sinful and wrong. It's, It's part of the the contradictions that unbelief makes in our brains and in our hearts and in our wills. Sin is ultimately folly. It's it's foolishness. It involves us in ironies. In fact, one theologian suggested that sin is a kind of insanity to where our minds and our affections and our wills, they don't work as they ought to, as they were designed to do. And so as a result, we lose our our place and our perspective and our our purity. We we can't really look at ourselves in any serious way and see ourselves in the right with God or in the right with others or in the right with our world. And the question that inevitably comes when we we consider this in a place like John 11 is, is there any solution for this, any solution for our insanity Any solution for the ironies that we find ourselves in, the folly of our unbelief, where is hope for us? Well, our hope is ultimately found in the word of the cross. The message about our substitute, which means that in this passage, though it's somewhat ironic that it comes from Caiaphas, our hope is found in the fact that one man did die for the people. And already Jesus told us in John's gospel that this must be so, that this was our only hope and this is what he had come to do. The previous chapters had been telling us who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
But starting in the last chapter, in John chapter 10, Jesus begins to tell us what his mission was, what he had come ultimately to do. He tells us in John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So over and again in that previous chapter, what did Jesus say? He said that he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And he, and he means that he's laying down his life. He's dying for the sheep in two ways. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep as in on behalf of the sheep. So that as he dies, Jesus dies in order that his sheep might benefit from his dying. He does this on our behalf. In other words, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep as our Savior. But there's another sense in which Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Not just on behalf of the sheep, but Jesus lays down his life in the place of the sheep. So that Jesus lays down his life, he, he dies so that his sheep will not have to die. So that his sheep will not receive wrath and curse that is rightfully theirs. He dies not just as a savior, but as the substitute. And that's what Caiaphas unwittingly, ironically prophesied. Jesus would die for the people he would die on behalf of the people. Jesus would die as a savior. And he would die in the place of his people. Jesus would die as a substitute. And he dies as a savior and as a substitute so that you and I might be set free. Friends, that's your hope. Your hope this morning as you deal with all the irrationality and insanity of sin, your hope this morning is that your savior is your substitute, that you have put your trust in the one man who died for the people, who died for you. So friend, anchor your hopes right here. Anchor your hopes in Jesus, the substitute, your savior. And in the midst of all that you are facing today, return to the cross and remember, Jesus is for you. Not just for the people, Jesus is for you. And he is for you because he is the one man who died for the people. So when you're sad, remember that Jesus is for you. He bore your griefs. He carried your sorrows. He's the one man for the people. And he died to wipe away every tear from your eyes. When you're alone... Remember that Jesus is for you. He knew God forsakenness. No one was with him in his death. 
No human was with him in his death. And even for a few hours, God was not with him in his death. He was the one man for the people. And he identified with us in our aloneness and in our loneliness. When you're afflicted, remember that Jesus is for you. He took stripes. He took wounds on the cross that he might heal yours. He's the one man for the people. And by his stripes, you are healed. When you are in the darkness, remember, Jesus is for you. He endured the night of darkness, indeed, the noontide of darkness, the the hell of darkness on the cross. And he did it as the one man for the people, so that through Jesus' death, you might know the light of life. Read it when you're dying. Remember, Jesus is for you. He died on your behalf. He died in your place. And he burst the bands of death. And he vanquished it. He is the one man for the people. And through his dying and rising again, you might live forever. Friends, don't you see? Can't you you hear? The word of the gospel, which is such folly to unbelievers. It is your only hope in this sad world. Whatever your condition is today, and you're fearful that you're losing your grip on your life and your world, listen, Jesus is for you. Because he was the one man for the people, for you, forever. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the King of glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Lord, that is our prayer this morning as we come once again to hear the word of the gospel, the word of the cross, and to, to behold and to gaze upon what you've done for us. Lord, there's, we think there's so many other things that we desperately, Jesus, there's nothing we need beside you. You are the one person needful, the one thing needful, the thing that Mary understood as she sat at your feet. And so, Jesus, we pray in those places where we are hurting and afraid and in the darkness and continue to bear trauma and wounds, Lord, meet us and remind us that you are for us because you are the one man for the people. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your worship booklets and turn to page 11. There you'll find our hymn of response, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Let's stand together to sing.